I see you work with a few modalities like teamwork, tarot. Um, mm-hmm. Recently, I think you've started on active imagination as well. Uh, but curious about your journey to how you uh, found these modalities, found this body of work, and what got you interested in using them. Sure. I think my my introduction to Jungian psychology was a process that seemed to just unfold very naturally. Um, before really discovering and getting into Jung's work, I was spending a lot of time um, around just self-development communities, um, yoga, meditation, um, self-work in general, um, also psychology and philosophy. And when I found Uh, depth psychology and specifically um, analytical psychology, it really felt like it melded a lot of different realms together for me, which was kind of like the pillar of spirituality, which has always been something that's very important to me, um, something that I've cultivated myself. Um, But on the same um, end of that would be a pillar of really like grounded psychological exploration you know what does the phenomena of 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 these spiritual pursuits as an example really mean on a psychological level i think for me personally i have explored lots of different realms of of spirituality and self-development but i've always wanted to understand why people are interested in this or why it hits people in a certain way or what are the different elements of our psyche that kind of come alive as we explore these different realms and for me uh, carl jung's work really just painted this beautiful picture of all of those things it just was it just felt very um, powerful for me to find his work and very natural. It just made so much sense and was very masterfully expressed through these different um, ideas and theories. And I, I just felt like the more that I read his work, the more that it opened up my own mind, but really sort of helped me define things that I had always sensed and understood, but didn't have the words to put um, those thoughts to. Uh, yeah, it's interesting you mentioned uh, spirituality because if you look at other modalities, like I think of, say, cognitive behavioral therapy, mm-hmm. very mm-hmm. anti-spirituality. <laughs> yes, yes, CBT is very, it, it's like the training of ego effectively, and that is a very effective modality. It is something that can really help revolutionize a lot of people's uh, lives and help them through difficult issues. But it's what I find most interesting, I think, for people is even if they've gone through some pretty intense therapy, some core issue, some core wounding might still be present and just resurface at a later time. And those uh, CBT um, exercises um, might not really help you alleviate these deep held issues. And I think that's what's very powerful about depth psychology is that it tries to take the whole experience into account as much as possible. Yeah. And I think uh, the, uh, I really like the way you put it. And, and CBT has this uh, blind spot, which is, it doesn't really take into account the unconscious, right? And, and young mm-hmm. people think, oh, wait, hold on a second. That's like, it's like half story, right? Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, you mentioned like, you know, you were sort of on this journey to uh, explore spirituality. What did that look like for you? Um, I've always felt like a very spiritual person, even from being a very, very young child. And I came from a more traditional religious background. My family's Catholic and um, my grandparents were immigrants from Sicily, from Italy. And so they just brought a lot of very strong culture, a lot of strong religious culture, spiritual culture. But I kind of grew up feeling like the traditional path of religion didn't quite uh, land for me when I would go to church or when I had my first communion. It, it there was something that felt sort of hollow in the experience. I, um, it, I it was like I was yearning for something much deeper to to kind of be held in that religious space and and interestingly uh, going to church and all of that didn't really fully uh, uh, sit with me in a way that it felt like it could carry me through my spiritual development. But one thing that really was very impactful for me was at a very young age, uh, being taught to pray for my grandma. And that was something that I always came back to, to prayer, 
to this in, in a way like meditation um, to a sitting with oneself, but also calling in a sort of higher power. And that has really been a core of my spiritual explorations, even as I moved away from a traditional religious background, I still was always wanting to commune with that sort of higher essence, that that numinous quality that kind of comes in as you work with the divine, you might say. So over the years, um, I got into meditation. I uh, got really deeply into yoga as well when I was in Southern California. And, and that kind of helped me just have a, a practice of being present in my body and being able to be in tune with my breath and to, to just work on myself in ways that weren't just purely in the material. And at the same time, still feeling a call to my uh, original religious tradition. And I think something that I've really appreciated as well about depth psychology or Carl Jung's work is that at many times we do feel a desire to return back to our native culture and native religion and, and to find those roots and to find those spiritual traditions and to carry them forward. So I feel like I've, I've tried to really blend those things into a place that feels right for me, which is part, you know, old school traditions of my family, but also part of the new developments of my own life. Yeah, and did you um, continue to pray the way you were taught when you were uh, a, uh, a young girl or did you um, maybe you mentioned meditation which which is similar but can also be different and yeah. just, like in terms of just that ritualistic practice did it was that a consistent theme or did you like add things or, or evolve that over time I think my practice of prayer has always really stayed the same it's always like saying the Lord's Prayer and kind of doing this kind of inner dialogue to God or to even my grandma after she passed or just to some part of myself, you might say like the unconscious, just sort of speaking into that space and feeling um, just that anchoring that that practice really gave me. And then as I explored different modalities, I felt like those were just complementary to what I used to do or what I already did and that there was always like a core essence that was really there and everything else kind of supplemented my spiritual practices. And when you said the Lord's Prayer, for people who don't, who can't visualize that, like what does that look like? Yeah, just a very uh, traditional... My, my, my only extremely stereotypical impression is like, I think I watched a TV show where like a girl, like before she went to bed, like on her bed, like, like put her hands up. <laughs> and um, how far away is that from like the actual practice? Um, for me, it's just the, uh, I, I definitely wouldn't like sit at like my bed as if I was like at church or at a pew, which not that there's anything wrong with that, but it, it was something that I used to do um, in bed because my grandma actually taught it to me because as a young child, I used to have these night terrors, kind of like nightmares. And she taught it to me to help me calm down and to kind of connect to a higher power. And, you know, it was her way of giving me a gift to help me through these difficult times. And so I would just, you know, if you do the Lord's prayer, you just sign, you know, the cross very traditionally, and then uh, just sort of go through the, the, it's a very short prayer, um, which starts with like our, our father that art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, et cetera, et cetera. There's a couple more lines. Um, but it's just like this, this repetition of doing that, that helps really ground and center an individual. You know, it's very similar to me after studying yoga as an example of doing like japa meditation or like having a mantra that you just say over and over again, or you might, um, you know, pray over a rosary or over a mala with your if you're um, practicing um, more yogic traditions and it just gives you that quality of being connected. It, it helps you activate that religious function that is so inherent to one's psyche. It's just this very deeply archetypal experience that helps you feel both grounded in your humanity, but also connected to a higher uh, power. And that was just such a gift for me at a young age and really helped uh, define a lot of my life moving forward as I continue to explore what spirituality really meant for me. Yeah. 
uh, and now that you know a little bit more about dream work and then um, uh, your your prayer practice has also deepened uh, what do you make of those night terrors mm, that's a very good question i think that uh, especially at a young age that um, it's quite difficult for children to be able to process a lot of difficult emotion and i think not just for me, um, but also probably for many young children when you might be in a period of stress or maybe something's happening in the home or maybe there's a situation happening at school, who knows, that a lot of that emotional energy can manifest in the dreamscape because you don't quite have the, the, the cognitive skills yet to sit and contemplate and process all of those dynamics. And so the unconscious is going to be doing a lot of that processing and it's going to show up in dreams very symbolically. So you're going to get those scary night terrors, like a monster that's chasing you through the night. And those what my night terrors were kind of like, you know, I think it was like a vampire and it was just so scary to me as this little kid. Yeah. But um, yeah, I think it's just very much a symbolic representation of emotional energy that couldn't be processed at, at a young age. And what do you think, uh, something I've wondered about is what is the, relationship uh, in your mind, I guess, of prayer and active imagination? Mm, that's a very good question. Um, I think it depends. I think individuals can kind of tap into a similar space that active imagination does when you go into these states of prayer or meditation. But active imagination, very it really is this really special a process where we enter into this almost trance-like state, um, often referred to almost like a waking dream, and where unconscious contents are invited forward. Um, we're kind of opening ourselves up to what the unconscious wants to show us. And as those images or thoughts or feelings, body sensations arise, then we interact with it um, from our conscious state. So it's this sort of dance between the unconscious and the ego. And I think individuals who are in prayer or meditation can uh, drop into that state as well, but they might not know how to fully interact with it. They might not be ready to engage with that unconscious material, but I think if you're in prayer and you kind of feel like you hear the voice of God sort of answer you, it's very much those uh, that same process of the unconscious coming forward and delivering what it can to you, which might be the voice of God or maybe an image of some sort of religious uh, figure. And, and that might happen in a state of prayer or meditation because you are allowing yourself to sort of suspend reality and allow yourself to drop into a different mind state. Yeah, that's really interesting because I think um, there's a part of active imagination, like the, the interaction part that you mentioned, that's very, say, unique. Uh, mm -hmm. Like, I think when I first started reading about active imagination or my first impression, I was like, oh, this is sort of like a prayer thing. Mm -hmm. um, but the, the interaction of your conscious mind with the different parts of your psyche uh, is definitely a very interesting twist. Yeah. But it also, uh, I think about people who are religious when they're faced with such big challenges that their ego, their egoic state can't find an answer, right? And they, they, they pray, like, you know, you hear stories of people like praying mm -hmm. all night for, for an answer that can, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. it, it sort of feels like, uh, are you familiar with the transcendent function? Mm -hmm. yeah. mm -hmm. Yes. It sort of feels like um, there's a desire to, uh, uh, find an answer that transcends the, the problems of that. Yeah, story, right? yeah. Uh, the tension, yeah. yeah. And there's, uh, even in the uh, Islamic tradition, which is what I'm familiar with, there's like, you know, there's like uh, a guidance of like, if you're facing a very tough situation, you basically, there's a prayer you do sort of like, it can extend through the night and you basically are reciting things in a way where I suspect the mechanism with which it works is the conscious mind sort of 
gets um, pulled into the words and allows your unconscious to then like open up. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. The 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 thing that made me slightly uncomfortable with the active imagination part is there is a bit of paganism and mm-hmm. polytheism that is mm-hmm. that is an associ- that is sort of associated with some of these ideas and processes. Hmm. Just if you've thought about that or grappled with it. Hmm. I feel uh, I'm I'm curious of what you um, might associate very specifically with uh, with like paganism or polytheism. Is there any specific area where you associate that to? Just so I can hone in on that. Well, so some of the uh, in, in 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 I think in Jung's description of his own active imagination when he was uh, uh, experimenting, he saw a lot of entities gods from mythology right yeah yes yeah um and he was sort of engaging with them the way uh maybe a thousand years ago would it would uh you know a, a pagan would engage with mm. an idol of that same mythic mm. figure right okay mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. yeah that makes sense i think there's I think that there's first and foremost a a tapping into the collective unconscious that can happen with active imagination, or I think as you go deeper and deeper and sort of pierce into the personal unconscious and then maybe even deeper into these other layers that you may start to interact with unconscious imagery that holds a lot of um, that kind of like historical and mythological quality to it. And so you might see these types of figures that are actually like directly pulled from religious traditions or from other mythological traditions, maybe even very uh, folk tale, fairy tale, um, uh, just that whole realm where really it's this whole container of uh, kind of like the the human uh, space that all of us can really Uh, grasp into when we move into an active imagination space and what kind of is born of that is something that we can look across you know time and space and see the the manifestations of in our history in our mythologies and our religions and at the core of that though if you strip it away are just these archetypal cores or these um, expressions of of the divine or of the numinous and I think that the if there is an expression that's a little bit more polytheistic or monotheistic that it still holds that powerful quality of helping you tap into unconscious material that can bring that transcendent quality that can help you um, grow and develop or to break the tension of a situation that you're in and i think often an individual will find in their unconscious or in active imagination the symbols and images that they need, the symbols or images that are going to help them um, really work with a situation. And so for some that might be an image of Jesus and having God talk to them, or it might be, you know, a whole host of, of Greek gods and all of their different expressions. And I like to just really look at those as symbols that are really meant to help us, um, you know, move through the world, making meaning, helping us understand situations. And to me, it doesn't make me feel uncomfortable at all because I just sort of see that quality of unconscious material and the archetypal structures that are behind those images. And that to me is that potent, powerful spiritual quality that we really need to help us develop, to help us continue that process of individuation. It's, It's really, coming into relationship with the archetypes and with ourselves in relation to them. As you've progressed on this journey, have you, how have you taught yourself? Are you like self-taught in these concepts and you've practiced on yourself and maybe uh, other people or like, have you gone through like, uh, like a school or like how, yeah, how, how did you, uh, learn about this Mm -hmm. i'm mostly self-taught yeah that's kind of been my 
my journey of development is um, I was in very traditional business uh, role before kind of moving into self-development and coaching and education. Um, but I've always kind of been a, a student of these different topics and modalities for a very, very long time. And I, when I especially got more into the, the Jungian side of things, I started taking classes from different institutes. So I've had some, uh, a little bit more training, like directly with, with um, kind of classes that are offered through the different Jungian institutes, but um, it's, it's come from a lot of self-work and self-study and realizing that um, what I think is really interesting is when an individual can kind of come from different worlds and synthesize a lot of different areas together and you don't kind of focus or specialize in just one area that it's, it's a very interesting and unique role to be in. And I feel like that's kind of how I've found myself. Um, uh, almost uh, by accident in a way that I've had an interest in say spirituality on one side but also philosophy and psychology and instead of just becoming um, you know like a tra traditional therapist who can't really get into more of that spiritual side I can kind of straddle some different realms and so I've had um, some more training in um, meditation and yoga and, and coaching um, to kind of help structure a lot of the work that I've done and then done a lot of self-study um, on the Jungian side of things as well as um, mythology and religion and, and other areas of self-development that I really feel like play a role in helping one holistically um, move into the realm of self-work and inner journeying. So yeah, it's been an interesting process for me of just um, trying to synthesize many different areas um, to kind of make sense of it for the everyday individual who's not, say, a clinician, but also not just into spirituality and self-help. Yeah, and you've also, you know, when you think about synthesis, you've also mentioned your yogic practice. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the things when I look at yogic psychology, Jung did, I think, have a lecture on yoga and the chakra, yeah, but uh, even if you think about his own typology, I feel like the body was his blind spot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you're laughing, so I feel like you already have thoughts on this. Oh, yes. I think that it's it's sometimes a criticism a little bit that I hear is that the Jungians and not even just Carl Jung himself, but even the other analysts, they don't have as much of the focus on the somatic side of things. Although I think some of the more modern manifestations of work like Kenneth James is a really amazing um, modern um, Jungian analyst who, who gets into that. And Marion Woodman as well has some some talks about getting more embodied, but it is a side of Jungian psychology that isn't talked about as much. So that is why I'm laughing. Uh, and I think what is the bridge between somatic sensations and then the archetypes in your mind? Well, there is this this sort of like illusion that the mind and body are separate or that the spirit and body are separate, but really they're, you know, Jung does talk about this a lot in his work that there's sort of like this spectrum of the, the sort of spiritual archetypal side. And then there's the, the instinctual somatic uh, biological side. And those two kind of exist on an axis that are, uh, in some ways opposing each other, but in some ways just very deeply intertwined. So when we think about the archetypal um, influences and unconscious material, we think about how it affects us, you know, emotionally or mentally, spiritually, but these things also manifest very deeply in the body. And I think even Jung himself could not really say with any certainty that, you know, are archetypes born from a biological source because they seem to mirror the the biological instincts you know they're almost like it's like a, a mirror of each other and so like which came first uh, it's like the chicken or the egg and it's just sort of this eternal conundrum that we we can't ever be certain of but they're so just inextricably linked 
together in this sort of beautiful dance of the archetypes and the instincts. Um, and so when we deal with different, um, I don't know, situations, initiations in our life, challenges, those things can just as easily manifest in our body. And I think that that's been a very interesting development in um, the world of psychology and somatics in the last couple of decades is that we have seen how much the uh, trauma can affect the body. There's an incredible book, maybe you've heard of it, The Body Keeps the Score, which was really revolutionary. Yeah, so, 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 so good, right? So we're starting to see how much of an impact that these um, supposedly like more emotional, mental experiences have in our body and where they sit in the body. And there's these practices that are developing um, where we can kind of tap into that stored emotional energy and, and learn to release it. And so to me that there is just this deeply intertwined um, connection between the somatic side of things and the archetypal side and um, they, they affect each other. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, because I guess traditions that start with the somatic would say that this part of the unconscious lives in this part of your body, mm. which is which is interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's also like at the it's like beyond the edge of my understanding right now. Yeah. <laughs> So. Well, yeah, you, you bring up a good point because you look at, as an example, like the chakra system and you're kind of looking at these different levels of experience that are symbolically held in the body, like the root chakra, muladhara chakra, um, holds our grounding and our relationship to the, the material and how... Um, you know, rooted we feel and, you know, our, do we feel like our needs are being met and we can keep kind of going up these different levels in the body. And they might even say that certain manifestations of issues like throat issues, that's the throat chakra, that's communication that you can't have this full expression. And so if you look at it from um, a lineage that comes from the somatic side, they're going to say that these archetypal d- dynamics are born in the body, but at the same time, you could flip it around and maybe look at a little bit more of a, a, a maybe more intellectual spiritual tradition or a more um, a, a, a non-somatic based side. And they might say that those things kind of exist more in the ethereal in an, in an, in an area of the, of the aura, you might say, where like, it doesn't have anything to do with the body itself. So it, they're just different perspectives, different ways of looking at the same thing. Um, and I don't think either one of them is necessarily wrong or right, that we're always going to be able to just look at this very interwoven dynamic, which is the instincts, the somatics, and the archetypal um, sort of psychological aspects. And you can you know, look at it from one end or the other, or you can try to sort of transcend both those polarities and just take it in as a whole. And um, neither are really wrong, in my opinion. Yeah, and it's also interesting because I suspect that, um, say, in a, like a yogic tradition, there's, there's maybe you're exploring something connected to the root chakra. Uh, mm-hmm. I would also suspect during that work that um, symbols in the root chakra would appear in your dreams as you're mm-hmm. trying to uh, work through it. Um, uh, so yeah, definitely, yeah, definitely very interesting. And I feel like it'd be interesting to see how those two worlds are bridged in the coming years. Mm. Yeah. And I think it's only going to sort of develop and reveal itself in these more refined and masterful ways as individuals just um, kind of grow into these different traditions and expand on them and allow them to continue developing. Because I think these these shared spiritual traditions that we have, you know, none of them are really static. They don't stay the same and, and that's because we're tapping into that sort of universal pool, the collective unconscious, and, and they sort of meld together at times. You know, we see mythological figures or religious figures that kind of uh, merge at a certain point in history and become something else. And, and I think that speaks to the just general development that we have as, as humans, that our species is really meant to keep um, searching and exploring these sort of unknowable truths in our lives. 
and in the universe and it will continue to hopefully refine in more sort of like beautiful ways. Uh, a question I forgot to ask you is when you were, when you've been, uh, as you've been doing this journey of, of uh, self-study, are there uh, intellectual or philosophical figures you've looked up to or whose body of work have really uh, influenced you? Hmm, that's a good question. I feel um, as an individual, there's there's been almost this, like I, I haven't had that many particular figures who have really defined my work. And it's, it's almost been this deeply intuitive exploration that sometimes lands me in a place of like, oh, suddenly I'm in a tradition of, of meditation and now I want to learn that. Um, or kind of finding myself and wanting to ground more into the somatics and, and getting into yoga. And so I think there's more like overarching areas of study that have been the most impactful on me rather than particular individuals. Um, like I think a good example of talking about this might be that I started having this sort of um, intuitive insight about shamanism. I don't really know where it came from. It just sort of kept popping up in my mind and I was like okay maybe I should look in a little bit more into what the um, you know the history and practices of shamanism especially in the west and how that's kind of um, kind of integrated into this culture and when when I began exploring that um, I met a wonderful teacher who is just this local woman from Colombia who studied shamanism. And it's like, oh, she impacted me so much. Her name was Claudia. And she taught me about journeying and taught me about what shamanism is and realizing, oh, when individuals do shamanic journeying, it's active imagination. It's this, oh, it's, it's this other manifestation of this deeply powerful meditative technique, but it has this cultural quality and history and lineage to it called journeying. And that was uh, really impactful for me and studying that um, really helped me kind of ease into the practice of active imagination once I came at it from the more psychological side of things. So I think for me, it's been different areas of study that have been the most impactful and then like the personal teachers that I met um, in that practice. You mentioned something really interesting, which is you had this like intuitive insight about shamanism. Yeah. I think a lot of people struggle with both acknowledging their intuitive insights and then following them. Mm. Mm-hmm. Let's start with, like, was it always um, very natural for you to do so? Or is this something that you've been to practice and now you're at a place where you can uh, easily follow your insights? Um, for me, it's very natural. And part of getting into more of the Jungian work has also been for me getting into typology. Um, it's really been a big fascination of mine uh, recently and um, developing more understanding around typology has helped me to recognize those natural, natural tendencies in my own personality and to work on that personal journey of understanding what my own natural typology is. And for me, I believe presently that my sort of most dominant um, function is um, being an introverted intuitive. And that means that I interact with the world through intuitive insights, which come from unconscious perception, um, which is to say that I kind of take information in, um, sometimes even subliminally, um, not as focusing on the material, what you can see and feel and hear, you know, through the five senses, through the sensation function, and rather allowing things to sort of bubble to the surface through the um, intuitive function and just trusting that very, very deeply because it's how I interact with the world. And I think a good example of that is I'll make some of my biggest life decisions um, from a deep inner feeling or I will not move forward with something if it doesn't sit right with me. If it, if there's something, I don't know how to explain it other than that like gut feeling, you know, if something isn't sitting right in that intuitive space, 
I will not do it. And then someone might ask, well, why not? It makes sense. You know, this, or here are all the details of why this will make sense. And I'll be like, I don't care. <laughs> Something's telling me it's not right. And that's the intuitive function at play. That's the perception by way of the unconscious. And I think Jung sort of looked at the intuitive function as something that was just so inherently incredibly mysterious because we are dealing with the unconscious and all of the dynamics it's picking up on all the subtleties and there's not going to be a very rational explanation so it's hard to study it's hard to understand it's hard to pinpoint why you feel that way but those who have that as a very strong function in their typological stack are going to move through the world uh, perceiving it through this intuitive space and so for me when those intuitive insights come up it's it's not something that i doubt yeah, I think you call them like irrational functions, I think. Yeah. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and I uh, actually got into personal typology maybe five years ago, and it was very influential for me as well in terms of thinking about how my brain works. Um, and it took me a while, um, even, even though uh, typology-wise, I'm a dominant intuitive, um, like okay. extroverted, okay. To, uh, I think there's like a comfort with concrete data, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. That, um, uh, that, you, that I guess, um, growing up in a, in a concrete world, you're, you're asked to rely on or asked to give as evidence. Um, that made it very hard uh, for me personally initially to like make that transition to like trust my trust my gut as you, as as you, as you said it. Um, yeah. And I also like the way you explained it, like in terms of sort of an ethereal feeling to 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 that thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. What would you say to people who maybe have um, intuition as their first or second functions, or maybe even later, and they're trying to develop it. Um, yeah, what, what would you say to, say to them? Well, I think that there are some interesting practices that one can employ to start um, training the intuitive function and to draw that um, skill forward. So for me, um, as an example, utilizing the tarot is a practice in in intuitive um, exploration and individuals can utilize these, you know, 78 cards that are full of all of these really powerful archetypal symbols and images to get in touch with their intuitive function. And what's interesting about, you know, utilizing a practice like the tarot as an example is that you get to really step into the realm of the intuitive, which is to allow these different insights to just flow forward, but you get to anchor it in something real, in something concrete. And that's what I think can be really helpful for individuals because that ethereal sort of smoky, elusive quality of the of the intuitive function can just make you constantly doubt and second guess any of those insights that you get. So having something concrete to anchor into like the tarot um, can really just help you start training and trusting those insights and also to allow yourself to just set some standards which is like whatever comes forward i accept it Um, you know be in a be in a space of receiving i think another um, practice that is really helpful with the intuitive function is active imagination or similar sort of imaginative quality uh, practices where we're trying to engage unconscious material and we're just receiving what comes forward not doubting not second guessing not repressing it or trying to push it back under the the surface just accepting and receiving what is happening what's coming forward and then taking that and then maybe doing a little bit of interpretation on that particular image or symbol so just allowing yourself to have that space of openness curiosity and to engage in some sort of practices that's going to allow unconscious material to come forward for active imagination, I've heard people caution against 
like doing it by yourself, for example. Sure. Mm -hmm. uh, is that something, I guess, do you, uh, do you have this practice? Do you do it by yourself? Do you do it under like, do you have a guide with you or like how, how, how do you personally uh, work with it? Um, for me personally, I've uh, found the practice to be very natural and very intuitive, you might say. And it's never taken me into a space where I have felt that I might become overwhelmed by the material that's coming forward or the emotional um, energies that are sort of moving around. Um, I think the best way to really move into this space is to take an honest um, kind of check-in with yourself have a bit of time before you enter into any sort of deep introspective practice and, you know, check in and say, how am I feeling today? Am I feeling good or am I feeling kind of anxious, overwhelmed, you know, depressed, etc. It's like move into this space feeling that you're the most grounded and level that you can be in, um, in the present moment. And maybe you decide that today isn't a good day because you're not really feeling that well. Um, you want to be, um, cautious, which is to say you should um, work through this kind of process, allowing yourself to be, um, you know, have some discernment with what you feel you can handle um, if you're in a place that you can do these kind of explorations. But for the most part, I've, I've been in a lot of situations where I've, uh, I've either done these things myself or been in groups of people kind of engaging in these practices, and I've never seen anything you know, bad happen. I haven't seen anyone become overwhelmed, but I do think it is prudent for an individual to just really check in and make sure that they're in the right headspace to dive into the unconscious um, while also recognizing that, you know, there is, a there is a potential for the, you know, to be flooded by unconscious material for it to get too intense. And if that happens, take yourself out of it, step back, take a breather, allow yourself to disengage from it. And then, um, you know, a few days later, at least reflect on what happened, what kind of emotion came forward, what part of you came forward that felt too much, too intense, because that might be a key insight into the type of material that you might need to work with. Yeah. And then changing tracks a little bit, um, You've also, you're also very familiar with dream analysis, mm -hmm. right? Um, and yeah, I'd be interested, actually, let's, let's have a bit of more of a, a intermediate conversation about it. Um, okay. So say um, someone's listening to this interview and then they're sort of familiar with generally how to, how to interpret dreams. Um, mm -hmm. um, and uh, uh, is, this, is this something you also help other people with or is this something that you just practice on your own dreams? Oh, both, yes. I do help individuals with um, dream interpretation, um, but it is also something that I practice regularly. Yeah, so um, if someone is stuck in terms of interpreting uh, a symbol in a dream. I think we're both familiar with Robert Johnson's work and mm -hmm. um, and um, say someone has like a symbol and they're, they're finding different associations, but maybe like they're not like, they're not getting uh, a sense of like which one is the right association and they're sort of, they're, they're stuck. Mm -hmm. uh, how would you uh, recommend they get out of that rut? Sure. It's good to look at the different levels of possibility with any type of dream image or symbol. So there's kind of the ways that you can walk up these different levels and explore if the dream symbol might have an association first and foremost on a personal level. So what are your personal associations to um, this image? You know, is it something that you've seen in your life before? 
What emotional quality does it have in that case? Um, you know, what is your relationship to it personally? And if that doesn't make sense, then you move to the next level, which is cultural. So the cultural might be not your exact personal experience, but the general cultural dynamic, religious culture, um, your actual country. Um, there might just be a general association to this image or symbol on a cultural level that might bring some insight. And the last kind of level that you can look at for a dream symbol would be more of the archetypal um, level. And that's going to be really zooming it into the um, that mythic state where you're looking at it on this much grander scale of, of quality of experience where that um, that symbol, as an example, like a bear on, a, on an archetypal level, it's like you might try to think about what associations the bear has. You might think of um, the constellation of Ursa Major and, and Ursa Minor. You have the big bear and the little, little bear. You know, what are the stories that um, bears come up in? Um, we think about, you know, the, the different um, warriors of Odin, the berserkers, and how they wore bear, um, kind of like bear coats, you know, bear uh, headdresses. And that's like this mythic, like archetypal side of the bear. And so might it, it might you have this association to it that brings like aggression and power or a more, more cultural association might be um, California culture, we have the bear that's on our flag. It's like, okay, that's like a cultural association. And what does that represent for Californians? Or maybe you have a personal association to the bear. It's your favorite animal. And it always represents, you know, this connection of like a loving mother bear. So you move through these different levels, personal, cultural, archetypal, and you try and find the associations that fit. And to be honest, sometimes you just can't figure it out. And that's okay. It's okay to give yourself permission to not figure out what the dream means or what a dream symbol or an image might mean at this time. But the important thing to keep in mind is that dreams, um, they don't happen in isolation. Dreams happen as a series. Dreams happen over time and they're connected. So if you don't get it the first time, certainly whatever this symbol really represents is going to come back around in possibly a new manifestation or the same image will come back again, but in a different dream. And that might give you some insights. So at times when you don't understand that dream image or symbol, just write down what you can and come back to it in your journal at a later time as you have more information. Yeah. It's, it's funny. You mentioned the bear. I definitely have had a bear show up in a dream that I interpreted. Uh, maybe mm. a couple of years ago. Um, mm -hmm. I definitely was oblivious to the cultural and mythic uh, association. Um, my, this was, the association that made the most sense for me was like um, a bear is something that uh, saves for hibernation, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, mm -hmm. but, but, but it is, it is fine looking at like what it, how it can be layers of something. Do you think dreams can... Uh, their meanings can change or have more depth to them as your, like say you, say you have a dream you recorded a year ago and then you like interpret it. And then maybe a year later you like have more material. Maybe there's something about uh, uh, some association that you like learn about or resonates with you and you go back and like, yeah. it. Um, is that something that, yeah, I guess what is your take on that? Yes, absolutely. I think that we, when we engage in dream work, that we have to be humble and we have to recognize that whatever present um, interpretation that we have is not concrete, it's not static, and that's likely to change and keep morphing over time because dreams often happen in series and these series are exploring different areas of psychological development or psychological processing and you might get some insights down the road that might shift the meaning or insights that you got on a particular dream a year ago and allowing it to have some fluidity and flexibility will help you not take the process too seriously, you know, to not feel so um, constricted of getting the right interpretation the first time. It's um, in some ways we might not ever truly know exactly what the dream meant in its entirety. And with that in mind, there can be a lightness in the practice and we can uh, allow ourselves to go back and refine different details 
or to even get a totally new insight that changes the interpretation of the dream. And I think that's really the best way to approach this type of work. Yeah. I'm also very, I guess, uh, mindful of like someone who is more used to a concrete way of thinking. We'll listen to this and be like, what do you mean the meanings change? Like, what's the point of doing something if the meanings change? Yes. Uh, <laughs> well, the, the nature of dreams is that they're full of symbols and symbols are these representations of meaning and experience and all this possibility and symbols themselves don't have just one singular meaning there's no um, one definition for a symbol rather they have all these many rich layers of meaning and significance and in some ways the symbol can't be exhausted all of the different ways that we might interpret what the sun means power truth um, illumination enlightenment we don't want it to have just one um, one meaning then it would just be a simplistic sign so symbols which dreams are full of which they're made up of are just very multi-dimensional so in that way when we return to a dream interpretation at a later time the symbol ha might have shifted a little bit and and that's something to um to be okay with if you're going to do dream work and then how um similar to getting stuck on a symbol um Robert Johnson at least recommends that uh, when you have interpreted a dream, you should do a ritual that honors the meaning of the dream. Mm -hmm. uh, do you have any uh, advice for people if they're stuck on like, oh, what's a, what's a ritual that's appropriate for? Yeah. Yeah, I think that you should think as an individual what type of creative expression is most natural to you or that feels the most interesting to explore at the moment um, these rituals can take the form of drawing or painting the dream image or symbol uh, maybe you're more musically inclined and you might just want to kind of play some music while you're feeling the emotion of the dream um, you might kind of want to dance to it. Um, you might even just do a little bit of, of writing on it. And maybe that's the ritual. You kind of set up your space and, um, you know, light some candles if that's your thing. And then it, you just do some writing on the dream itself, ritualizing what it meant to you. And all of those options are valid and good. Um, at the same time, you could do something totally different. You could dialogue with those um, with those um, dream images it's really about just tapping into that in that dynamic creative quality whatever's calling to you at this time and creating a practice out of that that allows you to not just um interact with the dream material you know on a on a shallow level but to take it deeper to anchor into the archetypal dynamics that are being expressed through the dreams so just pointing towards whatever whatever type of creative expression really calls to an individual Cool. Um, and I know we're almost up on the hour. Uh, where can people learn more about you, your work, and find you? Yeah, um, my website is the best place to come check out my, my work and the material that I do. So that's www.elisapolisi.com. And I'm also on social media, Twitter and Instagram. Um, and I give lots of updates and do different writings on all of this, these types of subjects. So uh, find me on there as well. You also a co-host of a podcast yourself, right? Yes. Yes. The Golden Shadow podcast. Um, me and my co-host Aaron Rogerson explore these types of topics, psychology, philosophy, self-help um, through an evolutionary and depth psychology lens. Um, so if you want to hear more on these topics, that's a great um, place to check out as well.